0: Reading this evening is um, from John chapter 10, which is on page um, 1076 of the Bible in front of you. So that's John chapter 10, beginning at verse 1 on page 1076. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate. But climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever c- came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal and kill and destroy. Our second reading is in Malachi on page 962, oh, or 961, sorry. Um, so it's Malachi 2 verses 1 to 9 on page 961. And now this admonition is for you, O priests, if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many away from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble, you have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. This is the word of the Lord. It would
1: be a great help if you'd have that Malachi passage in front of you, it's 961. And uh, the, uh, there are the headings on the back of the yellow sheet, uh, if you want to follow through. Uh, And this is uh, the second in our series on Malachi, which, as Tim explained last week, is, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 1, a message of God, an oracle. And therefore, it's relevant for us, although historically it comes from hundreds, indeed thousands of years ago, it still speaks to us because it's God's word. Malachi means, as you'll see again in the Bible footnote, a messenger, so we don't know who he is. The key thing is, He's been sent by God to speak to you and me tonight. So let's pray as we sit. Loving Lord, please open our hearts that we may hear your living word and be changed and transformed by it to be the people you long for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi was speaking to a demoralized people. They'd returned from exile. The temple and the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, but still their hopes had not been fully realized. And the reason given in these chapters, these few chapters, was that there were issues in their own lives that needed to be addressed before God could bless them. But before God even touched on those issues, you'll remember, he assured them, first of all, that he loved them unconditionally. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And that is still God's way today. Whenever he comes with a challenge or a rebuke. It's done in the context of his love and his longing for us. One writer put it this way, that we should place ourselves in the position where God can bless us. But what happens, to use our title for tonight, when leaders, spiritual leaders, don't lead? When spiritual leaders, in fact, let God down. What did God have against the priests? Through Malachi, he laid specific charges against them. And here's the first one. They did not set their hearts to honor God. That's in verse 2. They were just in it for themselves. They'd forgotten that their main responsibility was to honor God in all that they did. Now, this was not a new charge against the priests. For 150 years earlier, Ezekiel similarly savagely attacked spiritual leaders who were only looking out for their own interests, and he described them memorably as faithless shepherds. And this is what he wrote. You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And as a result of their behavior, God condemned those leaders in these chilling words. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. And the priests in Malachi's day were no different. And here's the second charge that God had against them. Their lives did not match up to their calling Verse 8, but you have turned away from the way. Some years ago, I asked the friend of ours, who is the daughter of a vicar, what helped her as a vicarage child to grow up following Jesus, rather than rebelling, as many have done. And she gave this memorable reply. My father was always the same at home as he was in the pulpit. Now, personally, I find that very challenging. Is the private life, the home life of a spiritual leader, the same as his public life? Or is there a split which implies a lack of integrity? Are they walking closely with God daily? If not, it is probable that their teaching will be directly affected. Here's God's third charge. Malachi highlighted the priest's teaching caused many to stumble. Verse 8 and it shouldn't have been like that because god expected them to be his spokesman verse 7 for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the lord almighty what a very high calling and false teaching of course did not end in old testament times In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned his disciples that they would encounter false prophets who would appear in sheep's clothes, but inwardly would be like ferocious wolves. And in his sermon, Jesus explains how you can tell the difference between a false prophet and a true one. By their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, if you want to tell a good spiritual leader from a bad one, then consider the results of their teaching in the followers they produce. And Jesus taught more about the serious consequences of ignoring our accountability to God's justice and judgment. It's Jesus in his parables who speaks again and again about justice and judgment. For example, the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, which describes the harvest at the end of the age. And Jesus says there will be a separation of the righteous and the wicked who will live in eternal bitterness and regret. And he describes it in these words, weeping and gnashing their teeth, as Jesus describes it. Because Jesus taught that the decisions we take have serious consequences, ignoring his claims will have consequences, and indeed they have eternal consequences there is heaven and there is hell, unpopular as that thought may be today. And therefore we should have a sense of urgency for our friends and family that they too should respond to God's invitation and God's gift of love whilst there's the opportunity in this life. And a good and a faithful teacher will not only not teach untruths, they will not fail to teach uncomfortable or even unpopular truths. If every sermon encourages you to expect the Christian life to be wonderfully comfortable and easy, if all you've been taught is what the writer Jim Packer calls hot tub religion, isn't that a wonderful picture, hot tub religion, then when you face disappointment, failure, even tragedy, your faith will be shaken and you will stumble because that was not part of the deal that you thought it was all about. We forget, of course, that the founder of our faith, Jesus himself, even went to the cross. When I was on retreat, just before being ordained, a series of essays were published under the title The Myth of God Incarnate. And what it was proposing, these academic theologians, was that Jesus was not God and man. He was a great man, but it was not quite as simple as that. Of course, if he was not God and man then he was not a savior. And if he was not a savior, we could respect him, but there was no point in my being ordained and giving my life to serve him. So I had to look in my Bible and decide what I thought. And I have to tell you, no doubt you're not surprised that I do believe he is God in the flesh. It matters very much that spiritual leaders teach the truth as revealed in scripture. We use our minds and our thinking We don't throw away our minds or stop our thinking, but we grapple with the revelation of God as shown to us in Scripture. Unbiblical teaching can lead you in the wrong direction and prevent you being clear about what is true. This always matters, but most especially, of course, when people are on the last part of their journey in life. So in this past week, I've had the privilege of ministering to somebody who knew they were terminally ill and I was able to speak of the hope, the certainty for those who believe and trust in Jesus that this is not the end, that there is more to come. And that is, of course, a huge privilege. One only dares speak words of comfort and hope because one knows that they are true as revealed by God in his word, the Bible. It's a very serious list of complaints that God has against the priests. And they will reap the consequences of not following God's ways, of showing partiality or favoritism, verse 9, just to a few. And God makes it clear that he will, verses 2 and 3, curse them and humiliate them. Why? Because the flock, the people of God, are so precious to him. God is concerned to draw them closer to himself because he loves them. And if his priests refuse to do that, they will be rejected. Now, this passage is primarily directed to priests and church leaders, but I think the principles apply to all spiritual leaders, children's church leaders, church council members, home group leaders and others. Do they set out, first of all, to honor God? Do their lives match up to their calling? Do they know the truth of the gospel and of God's word, especially if teaching it to others? These important tests should be applied in judging whether someone is suitable for spiritual leadership. So what positively does God look for in his priests? And this passage sets out two vital requirements, and our New Testament passage has a third. And the first one may have escaped you, but it's absolutely key. First, God requires spiritual leaders, priests, who know him, who know him. In verse 5 and 6, God speaks of Levi of the priestly tribe who walked with me and who revered me, and stood in awe of my name. What a wonderful picture, incidentally, of a man close to God. And the Hebrew phrase translated, walked with me, is used very sparingly in the Old Testament. It always denotes an intimate relationship with God. And it's a wonderful description of what it means to enjoy the huge privilege of friendship with God. Incidentally, the word paradise comes from the Persian picture, of a close friend of the king who has the privilege of walking in the garden with him. Again, it's another intimate picture of being with God. Adam and Eve enjoyed that privilege until they deliberately disobeyed God, and as a result, their intimate relationship was broken, and they hid from God when he came looking for them in the garden. It is horribly possible outwardly to go through the motions even to do remarkable things in God's name, and yet not to know him. Jesus made that clear again in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, and, and perform many miracles and the devastating reply to their question is given by Jesus, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In his classic book, Knowing God, Jim Packer writes of just that very thing. He describes a conversation that he had with a theologian. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement, by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. For that theologian, it meant far more to know God, to walk with him, than to have all the glittering prizes that the church could offer. Because a priest, a spiritual leader who is not walking with God, cannot possibly lead people closer to God. And a priest or spiritual leader who does not know or revere the Almighty cannot possibly help people to do that either. And if or when you pray for the clergy here and other leaders at St. Michael's, please first of all pray for our walk with God. Because it's in that secret place that spiritual battles are won or lost. It may not be immediately obvious if we're not living close to Him, but it will be in the long run. Second, positively, God requires priests who will teach the truth. Look at verse 6. True instruction was in His mouth, and nothing false was found on His lips as a result of that true instruction was that he turned many from sin. The good spiritual leader's aim is to turn people back to God rather than to cause them to stumble. And it's not just helping people to avoid sin, it's also showing them how to experience God's blessing. Because as we experience God's blessing, we will be more inclined to turn away from what damages our relationship with him. Blessings like learning how to forgive others, such a key lesson, so significant that Jesus taught us to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgiveness prevents resentment building up and causing lasting damage. Blessings like understanding how Jesus' death and resurrection can free you from the fear of death, which enslaves many people even today. Blessings like that which comes when we refuse to worship the idols of material possessions by giving away realistic amounts of money for God's service. As we'll see later in chapter 3, God actually encourages us to test him. It's one of the few places in scripture we are encouraged to test him, to test him if we give him the whole tithe, meaning giving realistically what he has lent to us. If people are never taught how to turn away from sin, to receive God's blessing, then spiritual leaders, the priests, have surely failed in their teaching. How do we know what the truth is? The scripture, the Bible, reveals to us what that truth is. So when the church goes through various convulsions about issues, and there is a great deal of sound and fury, which there will be, if there isn't already, the Christian quietly turns to his Bible to seek to understand the truth assisted by God's teachers who know the truth. If you're called to live away from London and you're looking for a church, the key question to ask is this, is the truth from the Bible taught here? If not, don't join it, because how will you be helped to walk in the right way? How will you be taught to know the way if it's not taught and you're not encouraged in it? The one exception is that God may call you to serve in a particular place, to be a mission partner, so to speak, but otherwise look for the church. The house will come later. There is a third and a final requirement. It's implied in this passage. It's expressed explicitly in the reading from John 10. It is that the good leader, like a good shepherd, must love the flock, must love God's people. At the first sign of difficulty or danger, the hired servant runs away because, as Jesus says, he cares nothing for the sheep. But the shepherd stays on and protects his sheep from danger. And even things when things are very tough, the good shepherd does not desert the flock. He knows them by name. Each one matters to him, and he leads them to safety. The Apostle Paul echoes that pastoral love for those he he led when when he wrote to the Thessalonians, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. As I look around today... I know many of your names. I know something about you. One or two I've even married. And you're very special to me. It's a huge privilege. Some I've celebrated with and laughed with. Others I've wept with. Shared joys and sorrows. It's a huge privilege for me to have been called to serve here at St. Michael's. So God requires some spiritual leaders to know him. To teach the truth to love those they serve. It's a daunting responsibility as well as a huge privilege. And all in spiritual leadership at St. Michael's and wider hugely value your prayers as we seek to be faithful, conscious of our responsibility and accountability to God. In particular, remembering one verse in Scripture which a bishop said was the most challenging to his mind and it comes from James chapter 3. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Let us pray. So, if you're somebody with spiritual responsibility here or wider, Just pray that God would touch you and remind you of the huge privilege it is, that he would equip you in this new year. Pray for us here at St. Michael's.